...in the dust of battle. One of the most controversial books in history. Some people claim it even holds the answers to life and death. The Bible was written by 40 different authors, representing a diverse group of people. They range from a doctor, a few shepherds, farmers, fishermen, tax collectors, and kings. With over 6 billion copies in print, the Bible is actually a compilation of 66 books written over 1,600 years. This makes it one of the oldest books in existence. It's also one of the most documented books ever. There are over 10,000 ancient manuscripts supporting its accuracy and consistency with original writings. Parts of the Bible, like Proverbs, read like self-help. It is better to live alone in the desert than with a crabby, complaining wife. Or, give beer to those who are perishing, wine to those in anguish. Other parts read like love poetry that conservatives don't want you to hear. You are slender like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb that palm tree and take hold of this fruit. There are rules to live by, too, like don't murder people. Four books of the Bible are biographical accounts of Jesus, called the Gospels. And then there are historical books about people like Moses, Noah, and occasionally, bears. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 43 of the youths. Right now, copies are being smuggled across borders. It's sitting in the pocket of a pastor being arrested. It's being read in jail cells and on deathbeds. It was tucked in the hold of the Mayflower. Without a doubt, it's a provocative and controversial book. Love it or hate it, believe it or don't. But decide for yourself. As the number one best-selling book in history, it just might be worth the read. You could probably just go home now that we've seen that. <laughs> well, uh, hello everyone. My name's Jake. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, so glad that uh, we can be here together this morning. We are continuing this series that we've been in for the last six weeks. Uh, I guess today is technically our sixth week uh, with Explore God. And Explore God, for those of you who don't know, the way that this kind of came about was a group went to Google and said, hey, what are the seven most frequently searched questions when it comes to spirituality or Christianity uh, specifically? And, uh, and so we've taken those seven topics and given one week to them uh, each week or the last six weeks. And so the way that that's looked is we've gathered in, in uh, different homes and we've eaten dinner together and we've hung out together and we've had great conversation based around these questions that we all wonder about. And we've had fun doing that with Christians, non-Christians, neighbors, friends, people from the church. So it doesn't matter, like just some fun, robust conversation that way. And then each Sunday following the discussions that happened during the week, we would get together and we would talk about how the Bible answers these questions. And so today, as y'all saw in the video, the big question that we're going to be addressing is, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? And this is a big question. It's not a question that many people are very neutral on. Uh, when you think about the Bible, it has a lot to say about like who we are, where we came from, what our purpose is, how to live, what's right, what's wrong, like all of those things. It also has a lot to say about God, like who is he and what's he like and how does he feel about us and does he accept us or is there something we need to do in order to be accepted by him, on and on and on. And so these are like incredibly big questions. And if the Bible is reliable and if it's true, then it could be extremely helpful to us to answer a lot of the questions that we have that we all wonder about. But of course, there are many reasons people have, many questions people have thinking that the Bible isn't actually reliable. It's not actually trustworthy or it's not accurate. Some of these questions, just try to jot a few down here. Uh, perhaps some of these are yours. Like, People say, uh, you know, is there any evidence the Bible is from God? 
Or can you even trust what it says historically? Or has the Bible been copied and translated and changed over the years like a poor game of telephone, right? Just kind of getting passed on and on and the story continuing to change and be manipulated? Or didn't myth creep in to make Jesus a divine figure? Or did Jesus even claim to be the Son of God? Or isn't the Bible full of errors and contradictions? Aren't the miracles in the Bible just made up stories and like how long would it take to actually sort all of these things out? These are good questions, right? And I've personally found that there are some good answers to these good questions. And here they are. Yes, yes, no, no, yes, no, no, and about 35 minutes. And so there we go. There we go. Is that helpful? We, We good? Okay. Seriously, these are good questions. And the big question, like, is the Bible reliable? All of these other questions fall underneath that. It's it's worth giving some time and thinking about and uh, exploring. But before we do that, I think there's actually even a more more fundamental question that we should ask about the question that we're asking today. Is the Bible reliable? That question be, why does it even matter? Why does it matter if the Bible is reliable? And I think the answer to that question, like when it really comes down to it, is it really matters if the Bible is reliable, if it's accurate, if it's trustworthy, only if the Bible is what it claims to be. That specifically, what the Bible claims to be is to, to be the revealed and inspired Word of God. And it only really matters if it's reliable, if that's actually true. And so it's like, well, man, goodness, like, how do we, how do we know if that's true? And like, we're going to spend a lot of time on that this morning. But before we do that, I want to just show you that the Bible actually does claim to be that, to be the revealed, inspired word of God. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, it says this, and I think I've got it up here if y'all uh, want to look along there. But Second um, Timothy three sixteen 16 uh, says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so like this passage, certainly not evidence that the Bible is God's word, but certainly worth noting that the Bible claims to be God's word. Uh, this idea of it being uh, breathed out by God. It's kind of an interesting way to, to word that, isn't it? But that gets to the idea that it actually finds its source in God. It's the revelation of God. It's God telling us something about him that we couldn't figure out on our own. And that's a big claim of Scripture because that goes different than a lot of what we think about as modern-day religion. Religion is often based around the idea that we as mankind are trying to figure out God. And our way to God. But the Bible, as it claims, is saying, no, this isn't us figuring out what God's like. This is God actually telling us what he's like. And then the other idea that's contained in this, uh, you know, this wording, uh, God breathed, is, speaks actually to the inspiration of Scripture. Meaning that the Bible finds its source, or finds its, uh, the way that it's come to be, is not by man writing down stuff but by God actually inspiring man to write down stuff. And there's a difference there, isn't there? I mean, one is just me writing things down, and the other is like actually this idea that the Holy Spirit, or God himself, would be moving within me, using me as his instrument to write down what he wants written down. There's a, uh, another verse in the Bible that talks more about that. I think I've got it here, Second Peter one twenty one. It says this, 
There we go. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so this, this you know, what Peter's saying here is like, the prophecy of Scripture, the whole of Scripture is not find, doesn't find its source in just man writing down stuff, but that God actually moving man along to write down what he wants recorded. And so like our understanding of this is to say that God actually uses people's personalities and experiences and like what they've seen and what they like who they are to write down exactly what he wants written down, exactly how he wants it written down. And that all of it the way that it's come to be is by the very hand of God. It's the very breath of God. It's the very words of God. Now, again, not a claim that like this is an argument for the reliability of Scripture, but it is worth noting that this is what Scripture actually claims for itself. And I think it's because it claims this that the question, is the Bible reliable, is even important at all. Because if it is those things, if it's actually the revelation of God and we've received it through the inspiration of God, then it's like, well, maybe I should look into this. Now, you might think, well, but don't all Scriptures, like don't all holy Scriptures, all sacred texts of the world religions claim the same thing? And what's interesting to note is that they actually don't do that. And the common thought on the street is that all holy texts do like say that they are revealed from God and inspired by God and it's a way to God that God's told us, but they, they really don't. In fact, I appreciate what uh, Mortimer Adler uh, researched and found and wrote up in his book, Truth and Religion. For those of you who don't know, Mortimer Adler, the editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica, I don't know if anyone actually owns a set of those any longer, but he was the dude behind all of that. He's a really smart guy, wrote over 60 books. He was an agnostic philosopher. Near the end of his life, he began to to think, I wonder if there's any truth in the major world religions. And so he went out on a search, and he read all of them. And he began to record his observations and what he said and what he recorded in that book, Truth and Religion. It's really fascinating. He said, among the major uh, religions of the world, only three religions claim to have a supernatural foundation to be found in a sacred scripture that purports to be a divine revelation. Let me stop right there and just explain it. So basically he's saying only three religions in the world actually have a sacred text that, that claims to be revealed by God. To have its source, the revelation coming from God. He goes on to say, the three religions distinguished by this claim are Judaism, Christianity, and the religion of Islam. Among the other religions, only some claim to have a logical and factual truth, but the truth they claim to have is of human, not divine, origin. Again, this is research done by an agnostic philosopher. He's, he's not biased in one over the other. He's just looking to see what do they claim for themselves. And in that sense, the Bible is actually very unique among all the world religions. It's one of only, you could say, one of only three or one of only two books that actually claim to be divinely inspired from God. The reason I say that, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, like the, he's Judaism, Christianity, and, and the religion of Islam, well, the Old, Te- the, the Bible is made up, the Old Testament, of the Jewish writings. So the r- writings of Judaism are the Old Testament. And then the Christian text, you would say, well, would include the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. So in the Bible, you actually have two of the three religious texts that claim to be inspired from God. Again, this is not an argument that it is inspired from God, but it's just worth noting that it claims that. And it's not like one of many that actually even make that claim. It's, it's really just one out of two, the Bible and the Quran. Worth noting, at least. 
But then that leads us to the questions, right? Well, then how do we know? Like, how do we know if it actually is the Word of God? And so what I want to do the rest of our time is just to look at three things. And there's so much. I mean, gosh, there is so much to be said on this topic. It's, you know, it, you'd hate me if I tried to say everything that there is to say on it. And you'd all walk out. But so I'm trying to narrow it down. And I'm going to have to move fast. I, my goal in this is to do two things, honestly. My goal is to, is to encourage you to actually read your Bible. Just to pick it up on your own and pick it up, pick it up and begin to read it. The other thing is, I want to, I want to maybe like prime the pump a little bit for you to get your juices flowing to cause you to say, well, maybe I should do some research on this on my own. Maybe there's more to this than I've given thought to. And like, you can go research this again. Just like I say every week, I would love to get together, grab coffee with you, you know, hang out with you and talk more, answer more of your questions. And I could, I've, I've got, a seminar's worth of information I could try to sit down and, and give to you, or I'd be happy just to listen to you. But like, if that's something you want to do to continue your research, like let's get let's let's make that happen. But without you know, having said that, I'm going to move on real quick into these three things. The first thing that I think um, has to be true if the Bible is what it claims to be, the revealed, inspired Word of God, is that the first thing it has to be true is that it has to be reliable. Which again circles us back up to the first question. It has to be reliable. But follow me in the reasoning, the, uh, 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 in my reasoning here. If God actually has revealed what he's like to us, to mankind, wouldn't it just make sense that he would make sure that his revelation wasn't lost or manipulated or distorted? Like if he, God actually cares about us and wants us to know what he is like, then don't, can't you just reason? That he would make sure that that, you know, revelation wasn't just for one small group of people and then they, it, they lost it or <laughs> they started to make up stuff in it. Wouldn't it make sense that it would actually stay reliable? Like it would pass the test of time. In fact, the Bible actually claims that the word of God does this. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, if that's a marker, if that's an indicator of the word of God then shouldn't the Bible hold up to its own standard? Like, again, just it would make sense that it would be reliable if it actually was the Word of God. So the question, again, I've asked it now 18 times. I'm not going to actually answer it. Is the Bible reliable? And when you start asking that question, you start doing the research, different than the common thought on the street is that, in fact, the Bible is extremely reliable. Like there's in tons of evidence that back up that the Old Testament and then the New Testament are actually the most reliable historic documents that we have from ancient writings. Like by a landslide. For example, let me just show you this. And I'm, I'm going to have to move fast, but I don't know if y'all seen a chart like this before, but, uh, there's, I've narrowed it down. You can, like, I've got charts that list pretty much every ancient and famous ancient writing of, of, of history. I just picked a few here, but like, if you see the top, it says author, date written, earliest copy, time between the copies from the earliest and the, the one that we have. I mean, the time when it was actually written between the copy, the earliest copy we have, and then the number of copies. And then if there's enough of a data sample, they'll actually give you an idea of the accuracy of the copies. Well, when it comes to the New Testament, the New Testament just, as you can see, blows this away. And like, I haven't just picked ones that the, that the New Testament measures well against. This is what, how the New Testament shows against all ancient literature, 
that it, by a landslide, is way more reliable and trustworthy than anything else that we study in our schools and read and have these main thinkers like Plato and Aristotle like have really shaped a lot of our Western thought. Like We teach their stuff, and yet you look at it, and it's like the, a time gap of 1,200 years between when it was written and our earliest copy or, or Aristotle, 1,400 years. We only have seven copies of Plato. We have 49 copies of Aristotle. Nothing, Not enough to get a data sample of whether we can actually test how accurate these copies are, and yet we teach this stuff because we believe that there's a good sense that it's reliable. This, what we say Plato taught, we actually wrote like we actually think it was from Plato, and same with Aristotle. And yet, when it comes to, like, you know, you look at Homer, like that, and that's specifically the Iliad, like that, and you're like, man, that blows away Plato and Aristotle. Like, 900 BC when it's written, 400 BC, earliest copy, just a 500 year gap. Now, 500 years. It all depends on perspective, right? Someone says something's 500-year gap. You think, oh, man, it's forever ago. But compared to these other guys, you're like, oh, man, that's reliable. That's right. And then 643 copies. Think, man, that's incredible. We can see 95% accurate. And, and through the science of textual criticism, if you're familiar with textual criticism, it's, it's the science of saying how early are the copies that we have to the original writing, and how many copies do we have so that we can piece together by examining these copies to see how reliable, to see how uh, um, uh, confident we can be that what we have is what was originally written. That's the science of textual criticism. And according to the science, when you look at New Testament... It's less than a hundred year gap between when it was written, first copies we have. We have 5,686 Greek manuscripts dating back for thousands of years, 99.5% accurate. Let me read you a quote by Bruce Metzger. Bruce Metzger is a scholar of textual criticism at Princeton University. He says, if you take the 20,000 lines of the New Testament, there are only, four, uh, only 40 that are uncertain that uh, they are uncertain of, and there is no doctrine of faith that rests on those 40. It is safe for any scholar to say that there is at least a 99.6% accuracy. In other words, the Greek Testaments that your Bible is translated from, we are 99% sure that, that's, that they contain what they, was originally written. So I would say, personally, what I've come to believe is like, I can trust that the New Testament's reliable. Like, what I have is what was written. Now, let me make a quick aside here. Because this is dealing with Greek manuscripts, and you, like, none of us are reading the Greek, unless you, you know, you're holding out on me. But, um, so we're reading English, English translations of the Greek manuscripts, and so many of us think about our translations, and we're like, well, what, how can I know if what I'm reading is what was written? Because it's you know, Greek to English, and like, aren't all of our English copies just copies from like, the King James Version? That's kind of a common thought. And let me just quickly say, that's not actually how it works. Because we have these 5,686 Greek manuscripts, what we, how we get our English translations is they actually go back to the original Greek. So with the New Testament, they actually go back to the original Greek uh, copies, and they translate it from the Greek into English. Just like 
anytime you translate from one language to another language, there are different ways to do that. And so that's why you'll see different translations. And someone will be having a King James Version. Someone's going to have an English Standard Version, which is what we preach from, or NIV or NAS being like all of these whatever translations. Like, why do we have all that? Well, just like if you were to translate for someone who was speaking Spanish, you can translate them word for word, or you can translate them thought for thought, or you can paraphrase their thoughts, or you can use one. There's sometimes there's multiple English words that you can use for the Spanish word that they're using. So you might use one English word, and someone else might use another. You know, like that, y'all get that right? Well, that's what's happening with our English translations. They all go back to the Greek. They just translate some more word for word, more thought for thought. Like in the English standard a standard version of the Bible that we use, uh, we picked this version just because. It's a little bit more of a literal or wooden translation. Let me just read you. In fact, if you have a Bible, if you've never done this, you probably just open it up to the very beginning part, and it actually will explain its translation philosophy of how they translate it from the Greek. And so the, this, this Bible, the English Standard Version says, um, let me see, uh, is an essentially literal translation that seeks as far as possible to capture the precise wording of the original text and the personal style of each Bible writer, as such, its emphasis is on a word-for-word correspondence from the Greek, as far as the New Testament goes. And so, like, that's that's interesting, right? And so, you, when you, I read some of the, the passages from the ESV Standard uh, Bible, um, some of it's going to be like, "Man, they, they talked funny. I would never say things that way." Well, it's because that's they're actually translating it word for word instead of thought for thought. Other Bibles will read a little bit more easily. Because they're doing that, but it's, you know, we just wanted to try to stay as close to the original text as possible. That's why we chose that version. So that's, that's an FYI, but if that's been a question, that's kind of how we get our English translations. Now let me get back to the question, is the Bible reliable? We've talked about the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? And um, again, I'm going to have to fly through this, and there's like a lot more uh, data than I can actually have time to share. But the, uh, the thing that's really fascinating about the Old Testament is that before 1947, the oldest copy, the er, like the earliest copy that we had of the entire Old Testament was from the Masoretes, which was a Jewish sect that was scribes, and they carefully copied the Hebrew Bible. They had a, uh, the, or the Hebrew, the Old Testament for us, and they uh, have lots of copies dating uh, from them, but the earliest one was from 900 A.D., Okay, 980. Well, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, we believe was written in 400 B.C. So you're talking about a 1,300-year gap between when the Old Testament was officially finished and our, 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 what was our earliest copy, uh, 1,100, oh, I'm sorry, 1,000 A.D. All right? So it's like, that's a long time, right? <laughs> or 900, I'm sorry, 900 A.D. So that's, that's a long time. It's like, well, how do we know? If this is reliable, like there's certainly time for myth and legend and everything to creep into these accounts. But then in 1948, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And if you are familiar with that, like that's one of the greatest discoveries of archaeology in the 20th century. It's hugely significant and an awesome thing to study. But one of the things that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was fragments of every single book of the Old Testament minus one, the book of Esther. 
And so you have fragments, and some of those fragments are just a couple of uh, verses long. And some of them, like with the scroll of Isaiah, is actually the entire book of Isaiah, which the entire book of Isaiah is significant. It's 66 chapters long. They didn't have chapters. We've added chapters in, but they, like it's long. In fact, it's 24 feet long, this scroll. If like you roll it out, 24 feet long, it's crazy, right? And so they are able to look at this and say, and, and date it. And so they started dating these fragments and dating the scroll of Isaiah. And what they found is that it carbon dated back to around 350 to 100 BC. Okay, so you got, let's just say you take the scroll of Isaiah. That we have a copy, whole, whole thing of Isaiah, earliest copy before the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery was 900 AD. It's actually 980 AD. And then you have this discovery of the scroll of Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it dates back to a little bit older than 100 BC. So now there's a thousand year time gap between what was our earliest to now what is our earliest. You following me? And so as you can imagine, biblical scholars and biblical skeptics and critics, like they were like pining to try to get their hands on the scroll and be able to start doing the research to, to see, does what we had actually add up to what they had a thousand years earlier? Like, can we trust it? Is it reliable? Or is it really a gigantic game of telephone? And are we going to see that people added stuff in along the way or took stuff out that didn't look so good along the way or like just made up? So like what? What has it changed in a thousand years? And here's what they found. Jeffrey Scheller, uh, correspondent for the U.S. News and World Report, reported on this topic when they released the data, and this is what he said. Um, Beyond some incidental copying errors, scholars have found only 13 relatively small variations, a phrase or a verse or two missing, or added, when compared to the modern text, they do nothing to alter the meaning of the text. 13. Did you catch that number? Just 13. Now, go another. Like, lots of people have things to say. I just want to read some of these quotes because it's really amazing. But um, like one of the most respected Old Testament scholars, the late Gleason Archer, said, even though the two copies of Isaiah discovered at the Qumran cave, one near the Dead Sea in 1947, even though they were a thousand years earlier than the oldest dated manuscript previously known, they proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text the little less than 5% of variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. Or as Sir Frederick Kenyon, uh, who's an archaeologist for the British Museum, said, the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Those are pretty big statements. But isn't that wild? thousand years 95 percent exactly the same word for word what does that mean well i really do think that that's a great reason to believe that the old testament new testament are reliable like we have what was originally written i wonder if it means something even more than that and i just want to throw this out to you as a perhaps just something to chew on but could it possibly mean that it's actually 
the word of God. Because it seems like it's passing the test of time. And as Isaiah 48 said, the, Lord, the, the word, of the God, word of God will stand forever. I'm not saying for sure that this is like a slam dunk argument, that it is what it claims to be, but it does seem kind of significant, doesn't it? Like it's worth thinking about. It's passing the test of time. It's really amazing. Okay, so is it reliable? If it's actually going to be God's word, then it has to be reliable. And if you look at the evidence, you can say, every, many scholars, most scholars say, yes, it's, it's 99.6% accurate. It's 95% over a thousand years. It's accurate. Like, it is reliable. But that's not the only thing that would need to be true of the Bible if we were going to make, like, believe wholeheartedly that's actually the word of God, is it? Because like, maybe that's enough to get you to start reading it. But what happens if you start reading it? You start reading some crazy stuff, don't you? <laughs> like, there's some crazy stuff in the Bible. And there's enough stuff in there that will really cause you to maybe stop reading it. Because you come across all the supernatural, and you're like, man, surely this is myth. This is legend. This is fairy tales, right? Like, you know, food falling from the heavens, and people living for hundreds of years, or, or giants in the land, or, you know, a guy getting swallowed by a fish and living, or whatever, you know, the ark and you know, two by two, really? Like, come on. And so, like, I get that. And, like, when you read the, and see all the supernatural stuff in the Bible, it, it just makes sense. It's common sense to just say, well, this is just myth. Like, these are, you know, just made-up stories. But here, I want to just reason with you for a second. Like I said, I, I get that kind of thinking. But flip it around, and it's unfair, because the Bible from beginning to end claims to be the revealed word of God. And if that's what it claims to be, then doesn't it make sense that there would be supernatural parts to the story? I just think if you read the Bible and there was nothing supernatural in it, if it was just stories of men doing what men and women do, you would say, there's no sign of God in this thing. Why would I ever believe this is like from God? Well, that's not fair. You can't throw it out for having signs of God in it because you're saying, oh, that's myth. And then if it didn't have signs of God in it, you throw it out because it didn't have signs of God in it. So that's clearly from man. So like, it's not really a fair argument. Perhaps, perhaps it actually makes sense for the Bible to have supernatural elements to it. Like if it is what it claims to be, then it would make sense to have those elements to it. Which is not to argue that miracles are easy to believe. Like we should just like hook, line, and sinker these miracle supernatural events. Like that's not at all what I'm saying. In fact, I get so much encouragement from the disciples in Matthew 28 uh, at the end of Jesus' life. Um, or actually right before he ascends to heaven, which you're like, yeah, I wonder if that happened. But like <laughs> right before, so Jesus had died, he'd risen again. He's resurrected body. He gathers his disciples to himself in Matthew 28. He's at the mountainside in Galilee, and he starts talking to them. And, and Matthew, the, the writer, one of the apostles, says this in 28.7. It's really fascinating. Or 28.17, he says, When they saw him, talking about the disciples, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Like, I think that's a fascinating admission, isn't it? Like, 
like these guys are the leaders of the Christian faith. You don't put that in there unless it actually happened. You're like, you're not going to like, oh, these guys are face to face with the risen Jesus. They're seeing him with his own, their own eyes. Like yeah, they can reach out and touch him. And they like, some of them are doubting. I like this passage because one, I know that their doubts didn't persist. It goes on. They all, they actually all die for their faith. Like you don't die for something that you're still like, I don't know if that's true, but sure. Crucify me upside down. Like, like they did Peter. Like that doesn't really make sense. So they, they ended up becoming convinced. But what I really like about it though, is that it, it kind of goes against the, the kind of standard thinking of like this pride that we have. I don't know if you have it. I have it where I'm like, I think that I'm a lot smarter than people who lived a thousand years ago. And so, like, of course, they just believed wholeheartedly that dead men rise from the dead, you know, rise again and stuff like that. But, like, this shows they thought like modern thinkers. Like, they, some of them believe, and some of them were like, like I don't even believe my own eyes. <laughs> you know? Like, they don't just, of course, yeah, yeah, food falls from heaven, yeah. Like, it's like, no, we gotta, we gotta, like, do we really, they doubted too. Miracles are not easy to believe. They're not. But if there is a God and he has revealed himself to us, then it would make sense that the biblical account would have miracles. It would have supernatural in it. So miracles can be true. Not an argument that they are true, but an argument that at least would say open-minded enough that they can be true. Now I'll tell you the supernatural element of the Bible that actually has to be true in order for us to know it's God's word, is when it comes to prophecy. Now, prophecy is kind of a weird thing to talk about, right? Like, oh, who believes that stuff? <laughs> but what's interesting is the Bible is full of prophecy, like 1,800 prophecies on 700 different subjects. And if you just hold the Bible, again, to its own standard, what you find is in Deuteronomy 18, 21 and 22, we're told this. If I could find it in my notes. Here we go. We're told that God says to Moses, if you say in your heart, how how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Okay, so if you just hold the Bible to its own standard, what it would be saying, what it seems to be saying is, Look, if the prophecies that are in the Bible don't, aren't coming true, then we can know that that's actually not from God. And if it's not from God, then the Bible's not from God. Therefore, it's not the revealed, inspired word of God. But if, if these prophecies are coming true, then maybe that's a clue that it is from God. And I think that it's really neat that God might even put some clues in Scripture that we could have some more confidence that it's from him. Because the truth is, is that we are horrible at telling the future. And mankind really stinks at that. Like I was reading some of these, I like these funny things, I like them. But again, 1875, the director of the U.S. Patent Office apparently resigned, writing a letter to the U.S. government saying, there is nothing left to invent. You know, like other than the car and the airplane and the TV and the computer and the smartphone and a million other things. Or in like 1943, IBM chairman Tom Watson said, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. <laughs> really? In 1981, Bill Gates declared, 640K of memory should be enough for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> we stink at telling the future. 
But God, if he's real, it makes sense that he would be able to do it. And so, like, let's look real quick. And, man, I'm woo, flying here. But, um, like, with prophecy, are there signs in the Bible that actually say that God, like, told the future and it came true? And is that a clue that we can believe it's from him? What, 1,800 prophecies? 700 different subjects. I'm going to just take three, <laughs> all right? And so the three that I'm going to pick are picked out because, one, they're prophecies that we know for sure can be verified by extra, uh, extra biblical, uh, biblical uh, accounts. So it's not just the Bible said it would happen and the Bible said it was true and we have no other proof anywhere else. Like, we have outside sources that verify it. And we know for sure from carbon dating that the prophecies that were made were made well before the events actually took place. So that's the three that I'm going to talk about, or those fit that standard. And the first one is when it comes to the nation of Israel in uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, because they are believed to have been written 680 BC. We have a carbon dated copy from the Dead Sea Scrolls dating back to 250 BC. That's not the entire Isaiah scroll, that was 100 BC, but we have a fragment of Isaiah that actually dated back to 250 BC. A little bit too much information there, but moving on. The, uh, in the chapter 11, there's a prophecy that God will scatter the nation of Israel across the four corners of the world. And we know that that actually happened, don't we? That in 70 AD, when Rome destroyed the temple and wiped out Jerusalem, the nation of Israel was scattered. And from 70 AD to 1948, almost 2,000 years, there's not an Israeli nation. There's no Israeli prime minister They have no home. They have no homeland. They're scattered across the globe. Now, how did Isaiah know that was going to happen? Hundreds of years earlier. Okay, second prophecy. Second is found in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah was written in 600 B.C. We have a copy of it, carbon dated back to around 225 B.C. And in Jeremiah 31, we're told that God will gather the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, back from all the nations to Jerusalem as a sign to all the nations. And we know that happened, don't we? In 1948, that's exactly what took place. The nation of Israel was recreated, and the Jewish people from all over the world flocked back to uh, to their lost but now regained homeland. And what's even more miraculous is that in the almost 2,000 years in between, when they were scattered and when they came back, that the nation of Israel actually remained a nation. It remained a, a, a people that even without a prime minister or a homeland or any of that stuff, they still, the nation of Israel still stayed intact so that in 1948, when the nation of Israel was actually recreated, they would come back. Like that, how did Jeremiah know that was going to take place? Like, 600 B.C. to 1948? Beats me. I, I don't get it. Like, I, don't, I literally, like, I don't, I don't know how to explain that away. Or how about this third prediction? The Bible uh, uh, has a lot to say about the city of Babylon. Babylon was the greatest city in the ancient Near Eastern Empire. But, I, but in Isaiah 680, in 680 B.C., Babylon, uh, it says, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 13.20, the passage 13.20, um, Isaiah says this, Babylon will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. And then Jeremiah chapter 51 verse 43 says, um, you will be desolate forever, declares the Lord, speaking of the city of Babylon. Now what's wild is that in 650 AD, 1,200 years later after these 
predictions, these prophecies. Babylon is completely wiped out. And we know that it was actually lost from history. In fact, 150 years ago, critics of the Bible were trying to prove the Bible was false because they thought Babylon was a mythological city. Like There was no evidence that it ever existed. And so people were like, oh, the Bible's full of made-up stuff because there's no such thing as Babylon. And then a few years later, they began to uncover the city of Babylon. Just as the Bible predicted would take place, no one has inhabited it. Most of it is under the desert. How do they know that that was going to happen? Can't really explain it. The other thing about the Bible is that not only, like, miracles can happen, but, but like, these prophecies, like, they have to come true. It's like, read these prophecies and see, like, do study. But perhaps there are clues from God that it's actually from God. The other thing that I think is supernatural element about the Bible is worth mentioning is just how the Bible came to be. Like, there's the, just the fact that the Bible exists and that it reads and makes sense is kind of a miracle in and of itself. Because y'all know the Bible actually isn't one book, right? Y'all know it's, it's made up of 66 different books written, up, written between a time span of, of 1,600 years. So from 1500 BC to just about 100 AD is when the Bible was written by 40 different people from all different walks of life, from shepherds to kings to tax collectors to tent makers to whatever, like fishermen, like all different kinds of people in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and from three different continents, you know, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And yet remarkably, it fits together as one book. And not like fits together like you can find it together, but like when you read it together, it actually reads as a book with, with a plot that fits over all of this. Like this, how crazy is that? The plot of the Bible is simple. It's, it's creation, fall, mankind turning their back on God and running away from God. Uh, and then uh, redemption, God chasing after his people instead of abandoning them, providing his son to die on the cross for their sins so that we can be brought back to God. And then restoration, that one day in new heavens and new earth, everything's going to be made right again. That's the story of the Bible. Explain that to me, that it would read that way if it's 66 different books, 40 different authors, three different continents, 1,600 years. Like, pick one topic right now. Healthcare system, and to take 10 writers from America living right now, all speaking English, and have them write something that would actually be read and make sense altogether. You're going to have all different views, all different things from all different perspectives. There's no way that it's going to complement each other. But in the Bible, you get that on big topics like who is God and what's he like and what's how to live, what's right or wrong, or origin of, of sin or problems with the world, and like who's the Messiah, and like, all this stuff, like, how does it all come about? How does it make sense? And even more than that, it actually even has a key figure, one key character that the whole thing points to, and that's the person of Jesus. i got a video I want to show you real quick that uh, makes this point better than I can. What is the Bible really about? Is the Bible basically about me and what I must do? Or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done? When you read in Luke and Acts 
how Jesus, in those 40 days, uh, got his disciples together, 40 days before he ascended, after he was raised. What was he doing? Basically, he was saying, everything in the Old Testament is about me. He says, the reason you didn't understand what I was about was you didn't realize that everything in the prophets and the Psalms and the, the law was pointing to me. Do you believe the Bible is basically about you or basically about him? Is David and Goliath basically about you and how you can be like David and Goliath or basically about him, the one who really took on the mate, the only giants that can really kill us? And so his victory is imputed to us. Who's it really about? That's the fundamental question. And when that happens, then you start to read the Bible new, you know. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the, wor into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save him. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. How do you explain one central character throughout the whole Bible written by all those different people? See, the Bible is amazing. And what's really interesting, though, is not like all of the stuff that we've talked about, but this is important stuff to talk about. The real amazing thing about the Bible is the message of the Bible. So once you start feeling confident, like you can trust it, then you begin to read it and you think, oh my goodness, I really do hope this is right. Because what we find in the pages of the Bible is that God loves us and that we matter to him and that he cares and he cares so much that he sent his son and God the son Jesus Christ went willingly to the cross for our, to pay the punishment for our sins that God when we turn our back on him did not turn our, his back on us but instead sent his son for us so that we can say God we know that you love me because you sent your son 
And through that, we can have a relationship with God forever and ever and ever. And that's amazing. So the Bible is an amazing book, but the most amazing thing about the Bible is the news of the Bible. It's the good news of the Bible. And so at least, at least what I would urge you to do is to read it. Just read it and, and, and begin to like familiarize yourself with who it says God is and what, he's, what he says about himself and how he tells us about how he feels about us and what he's done for us in Jesus. And then if you still have doubts about its reliability, research it. There's plenty of evidence. Keep looking, keep exploring, because I'll tell you, you want it to be true. It's the greatest news of all time. Because we got an awesome God. I want us to spend some time worshiping him, so um, I'm going to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. I know that there's probably people in this room that still have doubts, and like, I understand that, I get that for sure. And God, what's amazing is I know you do too. Like Jesus, when you stood before the disciples and some of them doubted, you didn't like lash out at them. God, that's, your grace is so incredible. And God, I pray for those that still have doubts that you would continue to be compassionate for, to, towards them and lead them to, your, to know the truth. And I pray that they would seek out uh, and research this and that they'd listen to what you are saying through people and through your word and that they would believe it. And God, for those of us who do believe it's your word, God, may we live like it. I'm so guilty of this. So often, neglecting your word, choosing to use my time and doing other things. God, may, may I, uh, may we uh, really uh, grow to love your word and trust you in it more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.